And this is all premised on, oh, well, the bodies are going to be piling up otherwise, like they are in New York and Italy. So it's imperative that we don't run out of space in, 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 in the uh, storage space, even though that we've never had a real big wave of deaths in Ontario. Um, we've, they've not violent bodies piling up, and yet they use this to radically, this premise to radically change the rules. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in an interview that is being recorded on the 15th of June, 2020. And today we have a new guest on the program, Rosemary Frey, who came to my attention uh, via some reports of hers that are being published at off-guardian.org, which I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with, so perhaps you've seen it already. Today we're going to be talking specifically about one of her recent articles on Were Conditions for High Death Rates at Care Homes Created on Purpose?, which I think the uh, the topic and context of that should be obvious to the listeners out there, but we'll get more into it in case there are any questions. First, let's welcome her to the program. Rosemary Frey, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, James. It's a real pleasure to be on your on your program. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. And as I say, I'm uh, somewhat embarrassed to note that I hadn't really been familiar with your work before I started seeing it at offguardian.org. But uh, according to the Off Guardian bio, it says that you've been an MSc in molecular biology, and a freelance medical writer and journalist for 22 years. Perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to uh, to be involved in this topic. Sure, James, I'd be happy to. I was just kind of a, I did a master's in science from a faculty of medicine at the University of Calgary a long time ago. I finished that in 1988. And then I just got into medical journalism, but more for trade publications for um for physicians and specialists in particular, mostly out of the States. And then I quit that about four years ago because I got so tired of the erosive and, and corruptive influence of big pharma and big medicine. So every time I picked up the phone, I'd have to figure out what the what the physician or the medical researcher was lying to me about. So I just got tired of it and I ran away, but somehow I, from medicine, I somehow got sucked right back in, first with vaccines and now with COVID. It feels like, yeah, there's a need. So then I just started writing stuff for Off Guardian, uh, uh, what, a couple months ago. Interesting. And uh, interesting also to note that there are two University of Calgary alumni in this conversation then. So there you go. Oh, cool. Awesome. There you go. Small world. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get past our University of Calgary programming and into some real conversation <laughs> about uh, important topics. So as I say, today, I want to talk specifically about this article, Were Conditions for High Death Rates at Care Homes Created on Purpose? And in this case, you're talking specifically about the conditions created in Ontario. But obviously, they do pertain, I think, broadly to a lot of the same conditions that were created around North America and in Europe, including in the UK. Uh, you list in this article three particular conditions that you note were contributory factors to the high death rates that that uh, have pertained in care homes over the course of this crisis, question mark. Uh, conditions at one, broad definition of novel, novel coronavirus infections and outbreaks. Conditions at two, hospital care rationing guidelines. And conditions at three, new rules surrounding death certificates and removal and disposition of bodies. So let's start going through that list. Let's let people know about some of these conditions, how and when and by whom were they created. Sure, James, I'd be happy to. So the first condition is the very broad definition of, of COVID and of, of an infection with a novel coronavirus. And this, as you said, does apply in many other places. I was just looking at the um, the conditions in the UK from the Geriatric Society there. And you can have the sniffles. 
and you're deemed to have COVID. And and here it's a little more, a uh, little uh, smaller, more narrow definition. You can have sniffles and a cough, and then you've got COVID. So they these were set right from the beginning of the pandemic. Um, in at least in Ontario, um, they said that anybody, if in a long-term care home specifically, or in a congregate setting for seniors, one person could have one symptom, and then the whole long-term care home would be deemed to be an outbreak, and anybody else. Who, who got any sort of symptom was deemed to have COVID. So that means that's that's that means that it's they've not only and they've just opened up the door to an outbreak. Anybody who has any symptom is deemed to have COVID. So if they die, they're therefore also deemed to have COVID. And yet, and what we usually should see though is a narrowing of the definition. So you can really be sure these people had that condition. So. And yes, how does that play into the uh, the hospital care rationing guidelines and how they've been adjusted? Right, that's the next uh, guideline. The next part is that they were um, starting around the middle middle of March. There were um, new triaging guidelines put out, saying, "Okay, we're in a pandemic, so we have to ration care, and this is how you should do it." And there there were ones that came out of the NIC uh, out of the UK, which is the the body that sets clinical guidelines for different things. And there was one from the New England Journal of Medicine, et cetera. And each one said that one of the main criteria for determining who should get care is age. And this is new. I noted in my article before it wasn't age. It was just, oh, there are different, age wasn't a factor at all. It was different, different parameters in terms of, you know, ethics, et cetera. And now each one of them says, well, older people don't won't have as many years to live if we save their lives through treatment for COVID. So we have to we have to put more of a priority on the younger people. And one of the really so that's okay. So older people don't deserve treatment from COVID or less of a less just prima facie, just because they don't deserve treatment as much as younger people. And also the federal Canadian guidelines um, that came out on April 17th said that not only do you privilege treatment of younger people, but people in long-term care homes should not be transferred to hospital if they if they get COVID. So they're kind of shutting the door uh, for first for old people and then saying, we're not going to transfer you to hospital. So that's a red flag. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. And I want to get more into that. But first, let's finish squaring the circle here. It's condition set three, new rules surrounding death certificates and removal and disposition of bodies, uh, which again has taken place in a number of places, but also there in Ontario. Yes, yes. Yeah, I found out uh, about the conditions in Ontario. I didn't even know about them. I really weren't. I haven't seen them anywhere in the media except my article um, in any sort of detail. But I so I was trying to find out how our body, our deaths rather, from COVID registered in, in Ontario, like in the government registry of deaths. It wasn't clear. Are they being registered? Are they not? So I managed to uh, reach Dr. Dirk Heyer, H-U-Y-E-R, who's the chief coroner for Ontario, and I had a little chat with him about things. And uh, he mentioned, oh, yes, um, we have, I don't know how this came about in our conversation. This is April 20th. He said, well, we have new rules that we that we put into place. They came, I put them in place on April 8th with the Bereavement Association of Ontario, which is the, the self-regulatory body that looks after funeral homes and burial and, uh, and transportation of bodies um, as well. He said, we put new rules in place on April 8th. Then we had webinars for everybody in the industry, well, at least the managers, 
on April, uh, uh, right after that, like a couple of days later on the Easter long weekend. And these rules are just, when I looked at them, they're, and they're not, you can't find them on the Chief Coroner's website. You can only find them on the website of the BAO, the Bereavement Authority of Ontario. They change everything. If somebody dies now in a long-term care home or in a hospital, the bodies are whisked away right away. So if you die in a hospital, they're taken, this is not Ontario, but um, they're taken away. You have to, the body has to be removed from the facility in an hour long-term care home within three hours. And this is all premised on, oh, well, the bodies are going to be piling up otherwise, like they are in New York and Italy. So it's imperative that we don't run out of space in, 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 in the uh, storage space, even though that we've never had a real big wave of deaths in Ontario. Um, we've, they've not violent bodies piling up, and yet they use this to radically, this premise to radically change the rules. So bodies are taken away right away. And then they are tra- the the death certificates are no longer done by people who are actually caring for the patients, so they're now done by the office of the chief coroner of Ontario, and the people in his office never see the people whether before they're, you know, when they're actually they're not treating them. They don't see them before or after death, except in very extenuating or unusual circumstances, and they do the death certificates. And the other thing is then right away after they take it to the funeral homes, they do what they call disposed of, dispose of the bodies. So to the to burial or to cremation right away. So there's no and there's no time. How do you examine the death scene if you're whipping the body out right away? And how do you do a postmortem? It's just there's a big void there. And it even says in the in the PowerPoint presentation that Dr. Heyer gave over that those three days right after he issued the rules, he even says, well, what if there's going to be a coroner's investigation? Do you leave the body where the person died? No, you take it away. But that's kind of a basic premise of if there's going to be an investigation, you should at least see where the body was. And if there's any, any, it just blows me away. Yeah, it is, so it's radically changed. It is incredible, and it should give anyone, even the most credulous, pause for thought about these incredibly important guidelines and rules being changed in the middle of a situation like this that completely drastically alter the way that this type of, uh, the data even about this would be processed, and the numbers will change as a result of the changes that are being made to these guidelines. That should give anyone pause for thought. But uh, as I understand, you've also even uncovered information about Dr. Heyer and his hypocrisy about the need, for example, for example, to actually examine a physical body. Yes, I have. When I was prepping for your interview, uh, talking to you today, I was, um, I went back, I just did a little search on Dr. Heyer, and it turns out he gave an affidavit or a sworn, test, sworn testimony two years ago in July 20, on July 3rd, 2018, to the Wetlaufer Inquiry, which is a, a fairly serious inquiry about the circumstances surrounding deaths um, by, of people who were killed essentially by a nurse, Elizabeth Wetlaufer in southwestern Ontario. She killed, I don't know, uh, uh, at least she was the biggest serial murderer murder in long-term care in the history of the province. So I think she had eight or 10 victims, either killed them or seriously injured them. And so there was a whole inquiry. And that's another reason this is alarming because just this wet laughter was inquired was two years ago. They issued the, the new recommendations last year for a lot more transparency around how, how people in long-term care are, you know, how they're cared for and also around how their their deaths are recorded so you, you can find any any foul play. 
So and so and and yet here we are now. Dr. Hart has changed these these rules, so there's a lot less transparency. And here he is also. So in his in the affidavit he gave, he said that he said a couple of things. Um, he said that um, he gives how it's really important if you're investigating the death to look at the scene of where the person died or to examine the death in situ in the place where it died just to see. And yet he told me um, when I was interviewing him on April 20th, I was talking about the fact that, you know, the bodies are whisked away and there's no opportunity, if, um, you know, and the, there's no opportunity to look at the body. And also that the person you uh, sorry, the chief coroner, his office, I said to him, your office is not even nobody in that office has actually seen the body. And he said, well, it doesn't really matter because looking at the body doesn't tell you anything. Wait a second. Then I look at his affidavit just now, and it says it's it's important to look at the body. Of course it is. You don't have to be you don't have to be a PhD or an MD to know that in a coroner's investigation, looking at the body in the place where it, the person died is important. Another really revelatory thing in his uh, thing that jumped out at me, looking at his uh, 51 page, uh, the part of the affidavit that has his, his uh, testimonies. He's talking about how. There's presently, this is two years ago, there's no way right now to find a signal uh, of whether there were more deaths in a particular care home or in a particular region. There's just no way. And he says, we really need to have some systematized data collection so we can analyze the data and and look for those signals because there's a needle in a haystack. And by the way, Wetlaufer was only, it, her crimes are only detected because she confessed. Otherwise, they would have gone undetected. So it's clearly we there's it's important to it's so easy to get away with murder in these settings. So we, he's saying we need to have a good database and be able to comb through that data. And he said he said we're working on this. And I've been in discussions since 2014 with uh, various people from the Justice Department in the Ontario government. And he says well it hasn't happened yet because it's just not the resources. And he said I'm very interested, but we're just it's not going anywhere. So here he is saying it's really important right now because right now we cannot find out if there's any uh, anything going wrong or detect spikes in death and and we're working on it but gee it just hasn't gotten anywhere now two years later it's absolutely buried because now we have a whole new set of rules thanks to him and uh, the Bereavement Association of Ontario. Again, this is absolutely incredible. Have you had a chance to confront him yet about the? direct contradiction of his own affidavit and what he was just well, saying I, a couple of years ago. I just found it. So I, I yeah, I do owe him an email to say, um, Dr. Heyer, this is, uh, this is a bit problematic. Yeah, I hope you'll keep us up to date on in any response that you receive on that. But that's an incredibly important part of the story. And again, goes to show even the most credulous should be wondering why someone in such a position would be directly contradicting what they were saying just shortly, just a little while ago, just because this pandemic crisis is happening or so we are told um let's get back to oh, can that I just question add, sorry one quick thing that he now since he uh, did such a great job of changing the rules he now is in charge of the new expansion of testing in all of ontario interesting when did he receive that yeah. uh just promotion? about three weeks ago i mm. think Another a very interesting thing, and I think uh, not just in the Ontario context, but everyone in their own locality should be keeping an eye on which health authorities and which officers are being promoted in the wake of this crisis response, um, because that often tells part of the story. Uh, let's get back to that question about uh, hospital care rationing, which is such an important part of this story, and is one of those things that when you read it at a surface level, at first glance, 
sounds reasonable enough, but the more that you look into it, I think it becomes more horrifying. And you, you quote, for example, specifically a March 23rd paper, Fair Allocation of Scarce Medical Resources in the Time of COVID-19, which was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, which calls for, quote, maximizing the number of patients that survive treatment with a reasonable life expectancy. Which, again, I, I would say sounds reasonable at first glance. Yes, of course, we want to maximize the number of patients that survive. What's wrong with that? So what can you tell us about this paper and what it, so the precedent that it's setting here? Well, it's all of a sudden changing the rules in terms of saying, well, the most important thing is that we that it's the older people get a lower place in terms of triaging. And I point out in my article also that... Um, Canada Canadians had a lot of experience with SARS because uh, we had that that uh, there were a significant number of deaths in Ontario because of it and there were people who from Toronto who had direct experience with SARS which of course is a, ostensibly at least a, a cousin of the novel coronavirus who wrote uh, triaging guidelines or at least an ethical framework for how to triage during a pandemic this is in 2006 they didn't mention age at all and here we are 14 years later, every single set of guidelines, including this really important New England Journal of Medicine uh, paper, say, well, age is an important criterion. And this and is what's interesting. So this paper is really important because and also the Journal of the uh, American Medical Association, which is the, you know, the official organ, I would say, of the American Medical Association says the same thing. It's age. So they're all stepping in line. And then the Canadian Medical Association said, oh, we don't have time to put our own guidelines together, so we'll just use this one for the New England Journal of Medicine. To me, that's astonishing. As when I was a medical writer uh, uh, and journalist, I did I did some work helping uh, various uh, one particular organization, the American the Canadian Thoracic Society, which does you know uh, chest infections and stuff. I helped them put together guidelines. There's a whole big set of organizations for every single specialty for creating guidelines. Yet, oh. We don't have time to put together this. And, and also, I mean, Canada had a lot of experience with SARS. So we had a lot of this background and yet, oh, we can't do it. And so they give totally, they quote, they say, we have to go with the recommendations from the New England Journal of Medicine. And interesting, the lead author of the New England Journal of Paper is the, is the brother of uh, Ram Emanuel, who's a deep uh, Democratic right. operative. Obama's uh, chief of yeah. staff, uh, mayor of Chicago. I did a, an entire report on Rahm Emanuel, but in fact, a very attentive corporate report listeners will know that I did several years ago a report on bioethics and eugenics, the ugly truth, in which I specifically talked about Ezekiel Emanuel. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am very familiar with him. So when I saw that name pop up in your report, I thought, oh, very interesting. And I think there's a lot we could dig up there that would be worth looking into. But as as you say, I mean, I'm not surprised by very much at this point, but I was genuinely surprised reading through your article when you pointed out that the Canadian Medical Association came out and said, yeah, we, we, you know, we don't have time. We're just going to accept the New England Journal of this this paper and all of its recommendations. We'll just go with that. That that really was quite startling that they, I, I, maybe not that they would do it, but that they would come out and say, yeah, we're just going to go with the New England Journal of Medicine on this. We don't need to research it ourselves. <laughs> we don't need to think about it. Uh, again, speaks to something very profound that's happening here, very important. And I think the real question here, not so much that it is being done or how it is being done, but really why is this being done? There is clearly an agenda 
towards this that, as I say, is not just happening in Ontario, but you've obviously documented that extremely well in this study. But as, as I say, it's happening in the UK, it's happening in North America generally. Why is this taking place? What I posit in my article, James, is it's because it saves the government money, uh, assuming, okay, well, assuming government is amoral, we can, many of us would say a lot of them are immoral, but let's say they are amoral, they don't uh, have particularly, ethics aren't that important to them, but because it, uh, old people are expensive. I mean, they, that's the, the later stage of life when you're in a care home, for example, you take a lot of care, it's, you're expensive, and you really don't contribute that much to the, to the tax base. And some people I tell this to that saying, oh, they're doing it, you know, there is an economic motive. They, they can't believe it. But I've certainly, there's lots of, I think even the World Economic Forum, they've produced papers saying, you know, there are, you know, old people are expensive. They don't say, therefore, we should call the elderly population. Um, you're not going to, they're not going to be that bald, but they are certainly, there's, you know, governments are struggling to um, to not have their deficits and their debts rise too high. So this is one way to reduce costs. I think that's an obviously identifiable um, concern here, and certainly that, that that does line up. But I think there are other things at play. And you did mention in, in your introduction that you one of the things that you found in your time as, as a reporter on these issues was that there was always some sort of big pharma involvement and what's the angle or the take of this particular doctor? You know, how are they going to lie to me? Um, and in fact, when digging up some material for our conversation, I, I noticed that you had testified to the Toronto Board of Health last year about addressing vaccine hesitancy, which, of course, is framed that debate, that entire debate is framed as anyone who has any questions about any vaccine uh, safety or efficacy is a loony and should not be taken seriously. And how do we address this? Whereas you, yourself and other other uh, people who were addressing the Toronto Board of Health made very important points, and I, I will put the link in so people can go and watch your testimony. I think it's important, but important points about how this is, uh, obviously, there is a bottom line for Big Pharma in in helping to push this agenda. Uh, do we see a similar type of push uh, with regards to Big Pharma connections to, to government uh, institutions in this latest attempt to jack up the COVID-19 crisis? Oh, so you're saying, okay, I understand. I hadn't even thought of that. So you're saying this will help to increase the death toll by all these death, a lot of older people in seniors' homes dying. And so it'll make people more scared. So they're going to line up more readily for the vaccine. Ah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and they've been, because they were pushing this, uh, you know, saying when we testified at the Toronto Board of Health, we, they were saying, there shouldn't be any information about any problems with any vaccines out there. And we were saying, ah, that's a big problem. There are problems with vaccines. And they were saying, no, no, no. So so that's quieting even more any voices of raising any objections to vaccines. So that even more paves the way for now, uh, what's happening now, where they're going to be rushing this vaccine through. And people, people don't really, there won't be much If there is no sense of crisis, there's no reason for the public to be lining up to take their shots and no reason for governments to be spending billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to make sure every person is vaccinated. So I think the crisis has to be magnified as much as possible, which is why I'm particularly intrigued about the big pharma connections of many of the players here. And you raise, uh, specifically in your article, you raise the interesting point about Ezekiel Emanuel 
who is a bioethicist and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And you note the center is secretive about its funders, but according to a 2011 investigation in The Nation, its supporters included dozens of giant corporations ranging from Boeing to Walmart. And today, retired General Wesley Clark and executive VP of global investment firm Blackstone, Henry James, are among the organization's trustees, advisory board members. So there's clearly some sort of corporate connections here that should at least be explored. And as I say, there's quite an obvious incentive for Big Pharma to make sure that any crisis is taken to the maximum level to justify the the spending of the money on the vaccines. I think that is an incredibly important part of this story. Yeah, that, that's definitely. And when uh, we as taxpayers are the ones who pay for these vaccines. So it's the door is wide open for for uh, huge amounts of money to be just pumped into our arms. I'm sorry, pump, drugs pumped into us to benefit the bottom line of big pharma without without really any checks and balances anymore. Absolutely. Well, um, as I say, this is a very thorough article. There are lots of references. I hope people will read through it. Um, but as I say, this is specifically honing in on Ontario, but applies to a lot of the same types of changes that have been taking place in the United States and elsewhere. And uh, as I say, seems to be coordinated. Um, now, uh, moving on from this point, obviously, this is a important chunk of the puzzle that we've just lived through or are still continuing to live through. What what are you researching now? What other threads on this are you pulling at, at the moment in your reporting? Well, we uh, just I with somebody, another person called Amory Devereaux just did a piece, uh, I think earlier, a few days ago for Off Guardian talking about how something called the Cox postulates, which are sets of conditions that have to be uh, fulfilled for a particular pathogen to be shown to be the direct cause of a particular disease. And in this case, we're talking about how the Cox postulates have never been fulfilled for the combination of this novel coronavirus and, and COVID. And in fact, the virus itself has never really been proven to exist because they don't fulfill this, these postulates. An important part of the story. So I will absolutely include the article that you wrote uh, in the show notes for this so people can check that out. Uh, will Off Guardian be the, the place that people should be going to follow your work or do you have a website in particular? Uh, most of my stuff at this point has been on Off Guardian. I also have a, a Twitter Twitter handle, at Rosemary Frey T.O., Okay, we'll include that as well. All right, well, uh, as I say, I will direct people to this article that we're discussing today. Um, a lot of information in it. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you wanted to stress? Uh, no, I just uh, I think we covered a lot, but I think the more people can look into this, I'm just, you know, one person with the occasional collaborator. There's lots there. You know, just in prepping for your interview with interview with you today, I found this testimony from, from Dr. Hires. So I think Sure, the more eyeballs that can look at this, the better. Absolutely. And again, everyone can apply this in their own particular context. As I say, this is happening in many different regions. So wherever you are, you should be doing this as well and looking at such things as testimony of these officials previous. Are they contradicting themselves? Who are, who's getting the promotions now? What connections? What kind of big pharma connections do these people have? All of these things are relevant and uh, should be dug up. So um, hats off to you for modeling how to do that. Uh, we'll direct people once again to this article, and I think we'll wrap up the conversation for today. Rosemary Frey, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks a ton, James. My pleasure. It's great.